Thank you all for worshiping. Thank you for giving. If you have a Bible, we're going to actually open up to John 6 this morning for the first part of our message. We'll turn to Ephesians 2 in a little while. If you want to put a bookmark there, that'd be great. Uh, I'll explain what I'm doing with this in a little bit. Um, or maybe not. I might just, uh, I might just sit up there. Um, but John 6 is going to be our text today as we get started into um, our message. And then we'll flip over to Ephesians 2 in just a little Bit and I, and I feel like I feel like Memorial Day is the perfect backdrop for us as we really start to dig into this new series of ours. Uh, we we began last week just scratching the surface of what uh, I think is really uh, a really important conversation that we as God's people need to have. And I, I think Memorial Day punctuates the message that God is trying to impress on us. So we are studying uh, what the Book of Ephesians introduces us to as the inheritance that God has for believers. Now, the, the, the conversation that Paul began with us last week, he cast a wide net over us with a beautiful vision uh, from God as to how he wants to make himself known to us and pour out his abundance on us. Ephesians 1.11 introduces us to really the, the title of our series, In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And that's a lot of, that's a wordy way of saying that God has made us part of His inheritance, that God has made us His children, and like a father does for His children, God has deeded to us these blessings things that we only receive and only get access to through Jesus Christ, and it's God's will that we take hold of these gifts. So as you know, again, an inheritance is something deeded to us, left for someone to enjoy, hopefully uh, to better your life from someone that loved you or, or loves us deeply. So the premise of this series is that inheritance means accessing all of God's will for us. Now, God's will is really a twofold meaning there. We think of God's will as what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live. But in the idea of an inheritance, will makes us think of someone's last will and testament, as in what they left behind, what they gave to us, or what they wish for us. So we see that, that word, that phrase, God's will, and it kind of has a double meaning. Yes, it's what God wants for our lives, but it's what's, what God wants to give to us our lives. And, and, and the idea of God having an inheritance for us to receive in this life is that we can obtain the full measure of our hope in Christ and receive the fullness of what God has to offer. And, and just to give you a, a little bit of, of what we talked about last time, Ephesians 1, 18 through 23 says, my, Paul is praying for us that our eyes of our hearts be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So Paul's using some flowery, big, descriptive words, language, right? He's saying God has a glorious inheritance for us. He has abundantly poured this out on his children. These things are riches for us to take hold of. And he says, I pray that your eyes would be opened to this gift from God to you. He says in verse 19 that you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. So again, we, we see Paul really poured it on hard here, right? This is the immeasurable greatness of God, the power towards us who have faith in Christ. He goes on to say, 
He put all things under his feet and gave him, that's Jesus, the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the, the opportunity for us, we are the church. We have been placed under him or under his guidance, under his care, under his rule. We can be filled with the phrase there, the fullness of God. So Paul uses that introduction, and we use the introduction to invite everyone to bring our lives before God in humility and in hunger so that we might be filled with these blessings. So if you missed week one, our main focus was simply to determine what these blessings are and what these blessings are not before we could even begin talking in full about what God has for us. Because so many, especially in our modern first world setting, we hear blessings in our minds immediately and almost exclusively think materialism. As good as God is to us, and he is very good to us, and as much as he provides what we need, our spiritual inheritance has nothing to do with those material treasures or earthly riches. It's much better than that much better. However, unfortunately, a lot of us still have an appetite for the flesh, and we are more in sync with this world than we are with what God is trying to do. And that's, that's normal. That's natural. It's because we're people of the flesh. We're, we're humans, right? So to us, the prospect of worldly blessings almost sounds more enticing than the spiritual treasures that God has for us. And we get it honestly, because even the people who followed Jesus literally during his earthly ministry, even the people who walked with him and talked with him, they conflated, and we read this all through the Gospels, they conflated Jesus in his kingdom with the blessings that he promised. They conflated those things with earthly goods and earthly power. They did not see that he was promising them something greater than those things. I mean, as great as those things can be, what God has for us is even greater. The reason we began the series with that discussion, it wasn't to buzzkill your enjoyment of this world, but it was to sober our obsession and our infatuation with this world because we all are, we are all super in sync and super in step with in this world. And you, you would say, well, Justin, I got to be, because if I, if I get behind, I'm going to get very behind. I, I, you know, I don't want to be obsessed with the world, but I kind of have to be in order to keep up with the world. That's why we need to have these conversations, because naturally, we are so obsessed with, so infatuated with this world. But the truth of the matter is, that distracts us from the spiritual inheritance in our entrance into God's kingdom. And, and the reason why this is so important, I think this is so obvious is that Jesus began his ministry with the message like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That within arm's reach of any one of us is this kingdom of God. Yet unless we change the way we see the world, have our eyes opened, unless we change the way we see the world and live in this world, we might miss what God is doing right in our midst. Jesus knew that our earthly obsessions and infatuation would prevent us from obtaining our kingdom inheritance in full. Now here's where this gets tricky and why unpacking this so methodically is so important. Jesus did all kinds of miracles and provided all sorts of material blessings during his earthly ministry. You can read about him, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was constantly doing amazing, miraculous things in the flesh, in the physical, in the material realm. And he contributed to people's already worldly aspirations. But it's in the details of those stories that we see that Jesus is pointing us towards something better, something greater. 
doing one thing in order to offer us another thing. Now, now my go-to example of how Jesus operated during his earthly ministry was that Jesus had an aerosol can of the kingdom of heaven's power. Now, this has just got air in it, so I'm not spraying any kind of fumes or anything. Jesus would go around, and he would spray the power of heaven. He would spray the kingdom of God into acute, isolated areas and instances to show what his spiritual power was capable of and to show what his spirit can do in contrast with what this flesh can achieve on its own. So he performed miracles over nature, over sickness. He would do miraculous things, turning common things into something uncommon, transforming ordinary things into extraordinary things so that people would have a visual aid of what his spirit was capable of. But in each and every one of those episodes that we read about in the Gospels, Jesus would say something to the likes of, just as I've done this, I'm offering you a chance to experience something way beyond this. I've given you an idea, a tangible representation of how transformative and radical my presence can be on your world. And I think the best example of this is found in John 6, where Jesus takes a kid's lunch bag and feeds 5,000 plus people with it. Y'all know the story. There's a big crowd that's come to hear Jesus preach. Everybody's groaning and moaning because he's went really long and he's preached really long and he's, they're very hungry and they're in the middle of nowhere. So Jesus takes a family's lunch basket, has a few loaves of bread in it and a couple of fish in it and he multiplies it. We don't know if he waved his hand or if he just said, hey, start passing it out and never run out. However it happened, he fed, uh, took that couple of loaves of bread and couple of fish and he multiplies it by hundreds and by thousands and feeds over 5,000 men plus their wives plus their children. So potentially over 12,000 people were fed that day through this one lunchbox. Now this is the story where people's eyes get super wide and their minds imagine all sorts of illusions of grandeur and they start making plans about storming Jerusalem and declaring Jesus as their king. Because hey, if he can do this, what can he do? We see power and we see privilege right in front of us. So uh, they thought Jesus was just teasing them of what he could do. So they began to, to say, why not call his bluff? And why not proclaim, his, proclaim him our king? And why not see if he would take the bait and, and, and take the throne? And, and who knows what might happen? So Jesus was so not about that. Jesus was so against that idea. He hurries his disciples into a boat. They cross the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm. And the story goes that the crowds all across the water the next day as well in hot pursuit of Jesus. And Jesus sees that he's kind of created a big problem here. There's 12,000 plus people that are all waiting on the next miracle. And they're thinking, Jesus, if you can take a lunchbox and, and feed a couple thousand people with it, hey, what can you do with the couple dollars that I've got? What can you do with a couple of things that I've got? Could you multiply that to the tens of thousands? Could you give me what I want just like you gave us what we want? And they start dreaming and their eyes get big. And, and Jesus says, I think, I think they missed the point. They did not understand his sign at all because his, it wasn't just a miracle. It was a sign. A sign is something that points you in another direction, that points you forward. They took it the wrong way. Rather than seeing the bread and the fish multiplies a picture of how he can maximize and increase his spiritual presence in their lives, they just start thinking of what else he might could multiply by 10. 
And of course, Jesus knew uh, all of this world. He knew how this would go down. He knew this was how the world would receive it. And, it. and it really was just a stage for him to preach some of the most powerful, enriching, enlightening words of life we could ever hear, that we need to hear. So just to give you a taste of what he said that day, that's going to segue us back to Ephesians. We're going to jump in at verse 26 of John chapter 6. This is after he's done the miracle, after they've crossed the water, after they are demanding for more bread and for money and all sorts of things that you can imagine they were asking for, expecting even, wanting to make him king. Jesus says to them, or answers them, because they're asking all kinds of questions. He says, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He says, I know why y'all are here. Not because you saw that I did a sign that points you to something better. You took the bread as the end game. You took the miracle as the end goal. You took what I did for you as just an example of more things I'm going to do for you. I didn't mean for that to happen. I, I wanted to show y'all something better. I wanted to show y'all something bigger and greater than that. So I've got to back up and kind of do a message on the miracle. So verse 27 do not labor for the food which perishes. I mean, isn't that a powerful statement? I mean, Jesus, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not laboring for the food that perishes. I just, I got to eat. I got to live. I got bills to pay. I got things I need. I mean, I'm not, don't tell me I'm obsessed with food that perishes. I'm just trying to live. And Jesus says, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. But you know what you're doing. Back up and look at your life from 30,000 feet. You know where your priorities are. You know what you're focused on. He says, do not labor for, as in work for, live for food that is just going to perish, things that are just going to ultimately not be here one day, for, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. He says, I think you should chase after something that's going to fill you eternally. And he's not talking about real food, right? He's using that as a metaphor, as a sign of what he, from what he just did. Don't labor for the food that's going to perish, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because, the, because God the Father has sent his, set his seal on him, as in, hey, if you're going to get this, it's only from Jesus. God has only stamped one person to do this for you. He's only gave one person the authority and the power to do this for you. And nobody else is going to give you what Jesus can give you. So then he begins to talk to them about this bread of heaven that the miracle was meant to point them to. So down in verse number 33, again, they're just, they, they, they start asking for more miracles and more works from God, and, and they continue to miss the point. So Jesus says in verse 33, For the bread of God is he who gives... It's he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he explains himself, Hey, y'all, I'm not talking about literal bread... I'm talking about something spiritual that you're going to receive from God that's going to fill your soul like that bread just fill your, filled your bellies. I'm talking about a spiritual sustenance that's going to do for you just like that bread did for your stomachs. It's going to do for your souls. And they said, Lord, give us this bread always. I mean, hey, and, and again, they're thinking literal. They're thinking bread from the store. They're thinking bread from the field. And they, hey, we want this. And Jesus says, I am the bread, verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus says, okay, guys, let me tell you the point of all this. I am the bread that never runs out. I am what you are hungry for most of all. I am what your souls thirst for most of all. You think it's this world? 
Do you think it's this stuff that's going to pass away? Do you think it's numbers and, 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 and things that add up? No, no, no. I am what you need. And good news, I have come to give you what you need. And this sets them on a discussion for what Jesus means by the bread of life, which is our spiritual inheritance that outdoes this world in providing for our souls. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, I, I encourage you to read all this, unpack, study all this, but he goes back and forth with them because they just can't get it. They, they just don't understand what he means because their eyes and their minds are so focused on this world. They don't see the spiritual message. And of course, how could they? This was brand new for them. And for some of you, it's brand new for you. So if you're having a hard time getting this, it's okay. But down in verse 48, Jesus says, okay, I got to start over. Sometimes if you read Jesus, he just starts repeating himself because they didn't get it the first time. If you want to know why the Gospels repeat themselves, it's because we need to hear it again sometimes. Maybe that's the preacher's excuse. Sometimes we repeat ourselves because we need to hear it again, right? That's what your parents did to you. They said the same thing a hundred times, and you finally started listening to them after you heard it a lot. Jesus says again in verse 48, I am the bread of life. And then he gives them another example. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. So he says, okay, y'all, remember how I just gave y'all that bread a couple days ago? Remember how in the Old Testament God fed the Jews with bread from heaven, literal bread from heaven? What did that do for them eternally? It didn't keep them alive. It fed them for those 40, day, 40 years in the wilderness, but that didn't do anything for their souls. They ate that bread and they, they're dead. Great story. But 50, verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. He says, I want to give you something that's going to actually help you and make a difference in your lives eternally. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the life of this world. Jesus says this is a spiritual gift, a spiritual sustenance. This is our spiritual her heritage. He gave up his life. He gave up his life to show us two things. The life, that this life is not at all able to be preserved. That Jesus gave up his life to show, us all, of us, show all of us that our lives are going to end one day. But also that we need something this world can't provide to save our earthly lives, to promise us something beyond this life. No matter how much of this world we have, we need something from another world to save us, to complete our lives so that we might obtain a life that will outlast this world. So Jesus says the miracle of the bread and the fish is an abundant and an abundant overwhelming supply was not to suggest that it's God's will that you always have houses full and bank accounts full and treasure chests running over, but to show you something better than that. That Jesus is your source of spiritual blessings. Your soul can be running over with what he alone can give you. So that's what he means when he says, I'm the bread of life. And this is what Paul means when he says we have been blessed with all the blessings from heaven. When he says we can receive the fullness of God, be lavished by the immeasurable riches from God. At the very top of that list of spiritual blessings that God wants to give you. Overflow your heart with. It has to be this different, this better brand of life 
that comes through Jesus. That comes from trusting in him and comes from following him over all. That Jesus says, I have come to give you life that you cannot get otherwise or anywhere else or from anybody else. It's a different brand. I mean, we all have our brands that we prefer, right? And you go to the bread aisle and all that bread is not baked evenly. All the bread is not the same, right? You get one loaf, you get another loaf, and it is different. Some bread is not suitable to you. Some bread doesn't taste as good as the others, right? And you have a brand that you pick over the other. Jesus says, I give you a different, better brand of life. Listen to how he defines that life. Verse 52. The Jews were quarreling among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because they're still so literal. And Jesus says, okay, y'all want to talk literal? I'll make this literal for you. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And, and Jesus is kind of leaning into their, their make, they're making fun of him. He says, I'm giving you something spiritual. And, and they to make it all into physical flesh. And they're like, oh, how can he give us his flesh to eat? And he says, hey, you want to know what this, what this compares to physically, what this compares to on your plane? It's like eating and drinking something. The idea is consuming everything that Jesus has to offer. Taking in everything that he says, everything that he did, all that he is. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. He keeps repeating himself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, okay, he's not literally asking them to come and take a bite, right? That's, I think that's obvious. But Jesus would go, go to the cross and pour out his blood and give his body and be buried in our place so that spiritually we might be raised up by his resurrection life. And comparably, or as you think about it, it's like we're consuming him as our sustenance, as our food. That's how personal it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. It's not casual, is it? That's not, hey, I see you every once in a while, is it? He says in verse 57, As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna, not as the people ate the other day and are dead or will die. He who eats this bread will live forever. So Jesus presents himself as the source of eternal life. He calls us to consume him and be consumed by him. I mean, again, this is total following Jesus. This isn't, hey, I see him from a distance. This isn't, hey, I see him every once in a while. This is a total relation, a pure personal relationship with God through Christ. If we do this, we will find eternal life. Now, the word eternal, it doesn't only mean length of time. Eternal, we often hear eternal, we think duration, we think length of time, point from one day to another. Eternal means something bigger than that. Jesus said in John 17 that this is eternal life, that they know you, not that you live forever, I mean we're going to live forever, but he says this is eternal life, that you know God in a relationship with Jesus. It's pretty clear, right? Eternal, the word eternal literally means the full spectrum of something. It means the fullness. So eternal life is full, complete life. Life that is totally fulfilled and fully realized. Church, 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 this, this is your inheritance as a Christian.
Not that you have everything that you want, not that you never have a care in the world, but that you are filled with the spiritual presence of Jesus and defined by Him. That your heart be filled, be set on what He is set on. Your goals be set by His goals. That your focus be fixed where He is glorified. God's will for us is that we come to be fully alive in Christ, made possible by the total sacrifice of Jesus. All that we experience this life, all we need to experience this full life is was provided in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in full. So, so we're not sitting around waiting on something else to happen. We're not sitting around something for something to, to, to be better than that to get our attention. We have all that we need. So, so I mentioned that Memorial Day is the perfect backdrop for this because as Americans, we are reminded of the sacrifice that men and women paid for us to get to enjoy the privileged lives that so few others have ever gotten a taste of in this world and very few others will. That's how rarefied the air is that we breathe every day as Americans. But all those luxuries as Americans, that's just like frozen food that's prepared in a microwave compared to what God has got for us, which he has given us through Jesus' sacrifice. We rightfully pay tribute to the fallen men and women across the different armed services of the United States military. Their sacrifice beckons us to live a life of appreciation and a life of humility. How much more, how much more should we respond to what God has offered us with gratitude and with an eagerness to take hold of all of it? He didn't pour out his life to be reduced down to a certificate stuck away in our Bibles. He didn't give up his life for us to do him a solid by showing up on Sunday. He poured out his blood and laid down his life that we might be washed in him and raised up in him. Don't you see that? And so often we sit around waiting on God to do something to get our attention. What are we waiting on God to do? What more does he have to do? He's already given us his best. He's given us his body, his blood. He's given us his own life personalized he's written us into his will he's bought and paid for our inheritance he's personally delivered to us on a silver platter but we still don't get it like we should do we and before you feel too bad it's not all your fault so it's on that note that we turn over to Ephesians 2 and we listen to Paul walk us through the nuts and bolts of salvation, and really contrast our condition before we come to Jesus and our condition afterwards. All this comes in the shadow of that chapter 1 that's remarkable, full of promises about our inheritance. And just like Jesus was telling us in John 6, God's primary will, the top item on the will, is that we come fully alive in Christ. So Ephesians 2 naturally starts off by reminding us of the hopeless condition we find ourselves in apart from this gift from God. So you wonder why we don't naturally respond to what God has done or why our default is to live a life distance from God. It, Paul's going to tell us. Our default is to live a life distance from God because we are incomplete people apart from God. Paul uses a little bit more teeth when he says it in chapter 2, verse 1 and through 3. And you, he made alive, who were dead in their trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that, that's the devil, 
the spirit of who works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So God made us to be creatures in his image, but sin and the fall resulted in our undoing. That means that something is missing in all of us. Our natural condition is to be distanced from God. Now, some may think that's offensive. Some may think that's excessive. In some Christian circles, even distance themselves from this message. But here's what I know. There isn't a person on this planet that deep down doesn't agree with these truths from these three verses. Some of us, we don't want to hear it. Maybe the language is a little strong, but we all agree with it. Because every person on the planet is trying their darndest to cope with the things they're not happy about. Trying to overcome hurdles they didn't bring on themselves. Trying to fight vices and battles that came out of nowhere. Everybody feels like something is missing. Everyone tries to fill those voids with insufficient remedies. And as far as the sinful and disobedient part, isn't it wild? Isn't it wild how we don't like being called sinners or we don't like our sins being called sins, but we don't even keep our own rules. We don't keep our own rules, and that's what frustrates us the most about life, that we don't want someone telling us we're wrong, but we know how wrong we are. We get so aggravated and frustrated at ourselves because we can't stay committed to our own goals. We fight temptation and weakness. Why is it so crazy to think that we're naturally disobedient to God? Think about 90% of the conflicts you get in with those that you're closest to. What's your excuse? What's your reason when you let someone down? Well, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I just keep doing it. I mean, I didn't mean to. I, I wasn't thinking clearly. Or, or I, you know, yeah, you, you know, I kind of have a lapse in that area of my life. I don't really want to be disobedient. I don't want to let you down. But I just keep doing it because I have this gap in my life right there. The point is we are all incomplete people. We're all incomplete because of sin. Our flesh is always carrying us in directions that we're not happy with. It's self-destructive. And the result is we don't love ourselves. We don't like ourselves sometimes. We don't like or approve of things that we do or that others do. And we get in fights with people because we want to pretend like we're better than somebody. But we're all, we're all incomplete. Our pride tries to make it a game, a competition. But come on, who are we kidding? We all fall short. And no matter how wealthy, successful, healthy we are, that doesn't make us feel any better. It just exacerbates that the things we try to make up for aren't enough. The things we try to do to make ourselves feel better aren't enough. We desperately need God to intervene in our lives so that we don't destroy ourselves and keep digging our graves further. We, we don't need a softer message that uses kid gloves. That's why Ephesians 2 doesn't hold back. Yes, we were dead in our sins. Yes, we were children of wrath. Yes, we were distanced from God. Yes, we are incomplete apart from God. That's the truth. But here's, here's what I want you to hear, or I want you to notice. The message in these verses isn't, what's wrong with you? Know better. Do better. I mean, the message isn't, you're, you're a mess. You've, you've broken all God's laws. You should do better. You should try harder. The message isn't, obey the rules or else. The message is, aren't you tired of being incomplete and unfulfilled? Do you realize there is a mechanism within you that's working against you? Maybe you don't know that. Maybe you've never heard that before. That's the truth. 
The message is, remember that God, the God we were just talking about, that wants to lavish his grace upon you, he has predestined you in love with an inheritance. Only through him can you find a solution for your sin. The holes in your soul that causes you to continue to lose the joy and the peace and fulfillment, the inclination in your flesh to do things you wish you would never do, God has something for you to help you. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love which with, with he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the age to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The good news for us regarding this gnarly situation that we're in is that God's rich mercy and God's great love makes us alive in Christ. He raises us up in power and he transforms us by his grace. So we were under attack. We were under siege. We were held hostage by our sin and our flesh. Yet Christ has intervened. Not only has he defeated our enemies, but his victory has secured and ensured our freedom for all eternity. That's the good news. Yes, we were dead. Yes, we were sinners. Yes, we were doing all the things that we shouldn't do. But God has intervened. He makes us alive. Not will make us alive. He has made us, verse 5. He has made us alive in Christ. I want to show you some verses that punctuate this right here, right now, truth about salvation. About how you can find this life right now, not later. John 5, 24, truly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death through life. So you don't have to wait until you get to heaven to be fully alive that right now you can have a full and complete life and you should have a full and complete life if you're a Christian. Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with Jesus by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, in fullness of life. Listen to these verses from chapter 8. These are so good. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So yeah, your sin is still there, and you're still being drugged all kinds of directions, but God's spirit is in you. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, this is to all of you Christians, this isn't something you get later on, this isn't something that only super Christians get. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of him who raised God, Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give new and abundant and eternal life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit that is in you. So his Spirit is alive in us. We know what kind of damage sin can do and does do. God's Spirit is more alive and more powerful in us than our sin has ever been. If we are a Christian, this is our reality. 
We know what sin does to our minds, our flesh, our lives. But if we've consumed Christ, if we put our faith in Him, if we received His Spirit, His life overtakes ours. Our life is now in His hands, empowered by His Spirit. Listen to how Paul puts a bow on this in verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. Not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So here's the truth. The gift that God has for us cannot fail. It does not break. It doesn't come up short. It's not of ourselves. It's not breakable. It's not incomplete. But Paul says there's something that's going to change in our lives. Salvation is the result of God's work, not ours, but it will result in a life of good works for God. And come on, it's not just good for God. It's good for us. When we talk about living for God, being fully alive in Christ, it only means an improvement for our lives. Yeah, it might first seem like God is just trying to say that needs to go, that needs to change. It might hurt your feelings because your pride says, hey, I don't want to change that. I don't want to give up that. But come on, Christ only wants to make your life better. Just a few pages back from Ephesians 2 is a text that you're all familiar with. Galatians chapter 5. Flip over there as we close. Just two or three pages back. The Apostle Paul writes about how we walk in the Spirit and how that prevents us from sinning, prevents us from living a life of shame and regret and frustration. And in verses 22 through 23 of Galatians 5, we we get these fruits of the Spirit, as in things that our lives will produce if we're following Jesus. I want you to listen to these fruits of the Spirit, and I want you to tell me which ones of them make our lives worse. Which ones of them make our life less than. And I want you to imagine, what if these fruits actually will make our lives more full and more fulfilled than a life without them? The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, as in there's never going to be a law that says, oh, you don't need that, or that's too much, or don't do that, because all these things just make our lives better. Just, there's no negative in them. And this is what Jesus is inviting us into. This is what these elements set before us, on his table, offer us. This is what our inheritance gives us access to. That if we live by the Spirit, we'll walk in the Spirit, as verse 25 says. We won't be conceited. We won't be provoking each other. We won't be jealous of each other. We will be free. We'll be better. I I think sometimes we hear God's will and we think it's some religious trick to take away our time and our money and our freedom. No, no, God's just trying to give you life. A life that you won't regret in the end. A life that you'll be fully satisfied with from end to end. Everything we need has been provided. The question is, the question is, have we moved all of our faith on Jesus and is his spirit moving our lives to be all about him? Our actions reveal where our faith is and where we are really relying on, what we're really relying on. The only hard part, the only hard part about this is accepting that your flesh and this world doesn't have your best interest in mind. That's the only hard part. And that, it can get hard. 
accepting that your flesh doesn't have your best in mind, that we need a Savior, and that even as Christians, we often get our eyes off the prize, don't we? That's the only hard part. And it's really only hard if our pride gets in the way. This is what God has for us. We can come fully alive and be transformed by the power of Christ. The question is, what is keeping us from that? God's grace has been poured out. He's trying to awaken a faith within us. Not a static faith that confesses once and forgets about it. But a dynamic faith. A dynamic faith that produces or gives to us a dynamite spirit. A dynamic faith that is always growing and trusting more. A dynamite spirit that brings the power of God in our lives. Are you walking in the fullness of the life that God has provided for you in Christ? Are you living by his Holy Spirit? These questions are not meant to really convict us, but open our eyes to what we have access to. And ask yourself, am I taking advantage of this? This is my inheritance. Why wouldn't I? It's not a work you've got to do. The work's already been done. You just have to have a dynamic faith that's always trusting, always following, so that you might receive the dynamite power of God's Spirit. Jesus says, come and take of the substance that quenches your thirst and changes your life, that gives you life, fills you with life. And after the invitation, we're going to come to this table that represents the gifts that God has graciously made available to us. All we have to do to receive the spiritual gift that God has for us is to trust that God is the good God he says he is. He is the loving Savior he showed himself to be. The Spirit is at work and can be felt in our hearts. And this is the part where my words can't make the difference, where no preacher's words can make the difference. No song can move you. This is the part that the Spirit of God begins to work in our lives. He uses God's Word to bring us to a place of confection, a place of conviction, a place of confession. He steps in and works in our hearts that we might take hold of this gift. So, so as we reflect on what he's done and what he's provided and how he's opened us up to a new life, I want you to ask yourself, is there room for you to renew your faith? Can you receive more of the Spirit of God? Or maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus and maybe you don't have the Spirit of God in your heart and you want that relationship with Jesus. Door is open. The invitation has been personalized. You can come fully alive in Christ. There's nothing standing in the way except our submission, our cooperation. If we want it and ask for it, the grace of God will not hold back what's already been given to us. It was this Sunday in 33 AD, the final act of the redemption plan, where God poured out his spirit on those gathered at that festival. And ever since then, he's been pouring out his spirit on all who trust that Jesus is their everything. And he can make us fully alive in this power. Would you let God do that work in your heart today and take hold of the life that he alone can give you? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the invitation that you've given us, for setting before us symbols of this gift you gave up your life so that it would be so simple for us all we have to do is trust you to take from you the body and blood to take from you the gift of salvation it's not a work we've got to do it's a gift that you have done for us lord if there's anybody in the house today that would confess they're not fully alive 
they're, they're saved and they put their faith in Jesus a long time ago, but they're not living every day like His Spirit is there all in all, like they have a dynamite power from heaven alive in them. That's just not their reality. God, would you show them that through a dynamic faith, through a faith that is always putting Jesus first and trusting Him and following Him, they can receive this full and abundant life. There's nothing in the way except, except whatever they're holding on to, whatever they've put in front of you. Lord, let us lay those things down and put our eyes on Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.